U.S. veterans deserve access to quality health care. Yet delivering that treatment proves challenging across our nation's most rural communities. I'm David Himmel. Join me on November 20th for a special branded episode of Pulse Check from our sponsor, Philips. We'll explore the telehealth technologies that are closing the distance gap between rural vets and their clinicians, technologies that could one day be leveraged by all U.S. healthcare consumers, no matter where they live. Well, when we send our brave service volunteers into, uh, into duty, we expect them to go into harm's way. But when they come back home, uh, they should get the finest medical care. Hello, Pulse Check listeners. I'm Dan Diamond. And on this Veterans Day, we're beginning a new miniseries publishing this week and next on the future of the Veterans Administration. As you may know, the VA has suffered. Everybody loves the vets. and They do? It's been under very close scrutiny. A new report out today questions how the department is being run. A waiting time scandal five years ago. CBS News investigations revealed widespread manipulation of appointment wait times. More than 600,000 vets continued to wait a month or more. At least 40 veterans died waiting for months for appointments. Bloody scuffles in the leadership among VA and White House officials who fought over the agency's direction. There's new fallout from his latest fire, the head of the VA. Apparently they're having a devil of a time trying to find someone to run a veterans affairs, the VA. You keep saying, though, that you, 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 were, sta- you were the one standing between privatization of the VA and the White House. Tampering by members of President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. For the past year and a half, there are these three guys in Mar-a-Lago, uh, an entertainment executive, a lawyer, and a doctor, uh, who have been acting as a shadow leadership for the Department of Veterans Affairs. The VA does need to modernize to live up to its mission to provide better care, but that modernization process, allowing veterans to get more of their care in the private health care system, spending $16 billion on a brand-new electronic health record system, has a lot of risks. And many veterans and supporters of the VA worry that those changes will make it easier for the agency to be privatized in part or in whole. It's an existential question facing the agency. It is not clear what's going to happen to the VA. I mean, th- this is a war surrounding the VA that started, you know, years ago and will probably go many years into the future. This place is broken from the top to the bottom. My colleague Arthur Allen has covered the VA for three years. It's a complex, crazy place. And he'll be telling this story over the next few episodes. Art, where should we start? So... Um, here in Washington, everybody loves veterans or says they do anyway. Um, loving veterans, if you're a red-blooded politician, means trashing the people who are responsible for the VA. That's almost as venerable a custom as uh, loving veterans. And there's some justification for this. Uh, but overall, the Veterans Health Administration gets really high ratings from its customers. There are 9 million veterans who use it. There are some generational differences because it's, it's had to retool to deal with, you know, these latest wars we've had and the types of injuries and the types of backgrounds, really, of the people who are going into the VA are really different than people who came out of Vietnam, uh, the, the veterans from that era. And so, you know, not everybody is, is satisfied with the care they're getting there. Um, but overall, it compares well with the U.S. healthcare system. So are, you've talked to a number of folks for this series. Who are we starting with? So 
We are starting with Andrea Plate. Almost nothing about the VA surprises me. If if someone said it was really fabulous and running well, uh, that might surprise me. Because she worked until recently at one of the biggest VA hospitals in West L.A. Which is the largest in the country. And I worked most of those years in a residential treatment program. It was called the domiciliary. And as a social worker there, she worked with some of the most difficult customers. These were homeless veterans, veterans with mental health and substance abuse issues. She had suicide issues to deal with. And I was a lead social worker. I had a substance abuse program. Uh, And when I started... In 2002, everybody, all the veterans were old, and a few years after the Iraq war broke out, some really young, beefy guys were seen, and now, of course, it's overrun. And Andrea is an interesting person. She uh, was a childhood actress. I started around 1960, and I was in the golden era of television. In some ways, it wasn't that dissimilar from the VA. It, it's a funny how being a child actress, you know, when you learn early on and you have to speak and project and kind of sell yourself to Rod Serling and get the job, uh, you, you can be better on your feet than someone who didn't have that early childhood advantage. And then you just hide the mental and emotional scars. But the love of her professional life has been the VA. And we had a conversation about the culture of the place and what it's like to try to take care of veterans within a bureaucratic maze where the instructions from the top, that is Washington, Uh, tend to drastically change every four years. Okay, hi. (laughs) So what should I say? Just from beautiful Beverly Hills, this is... (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that inhabiting all those different roles, uh, you know, I mean, what's... How how did you get into social work from that? Well, um, I got into social work... um, for two reasons. I, I would say largely my father was the a uh, blacklisted uh, commie in the – I was a red diaper baby uh-huh. during the McCarthy era. And uh, they moved from the New York to California where I was born. So one thing was I was put to work um, while he was out of work and then I stayed in the work. Um, how I got to social work was that although he was movie struck, he was more politically struck. Right. And I and I went to UC Berkeley, and I think kind of always had that liberal bent, and it made me. He he was a champion of disenfranchised people, so um, I really wanted to pursue social work. Did that just kind of wasn't sure what I was getting into. Um, I went to the VA because um, it was nearby and they had a job opportunity and I fell in love. I fell in love with the veterans. The guys that we protested during the Vietnam War and that we called traitors, you know, the Jane Fonda kind of thing, I ended up doing a lot of mea culpa, I think, serving the people whom I had once perhaps demonstrated against. Well, what was the best thing about working in the VA and you know, what was the worst thing? The best thing was the chance to help someone every day. 
and it was never who you expected. You could get somebody who you'd think, oh, the guy's been homeless 30 years, you know, he's never going to stop using, and 10 years later, uh, he's working at the VA, and he looks terrific, and he's married, and he has a family, and he's achieved psychiatric stability. The this And the struggle, just the feeling of... If somebody gets off the street and the magic that happens when they get a hot shower, um, I found great satisfaction in that. Mm -hmm. Um, The worst thing is the bureaucracy, is the VA. Everyone knows VA is a bureaucratic mess. And I served under first W. Bush, then Obama's eight years, and – a few months (laughs) under the Trump administration, and the trickle-down effects from each president could be felt. But I hear now that it's considerably worse even than I was there, which seems unfathomable to me. What do you think, as a sort of from the perspective of a social worker, and of course Mm -hmm. at the VA you're dealing with a special population. Yes. But if you had, what's your thought about what the VA does right, um, you know, what are its strengths mm-hmm. if you compare it to the rest of the healthcare system, say? Good question. Thank you. I think one of the strengths is uh, however limited the resources, how hard they try to invest in the treatment protocols that are very specialized, like for PTSD or mm-hmm. for traumatic brain injury. What worries me about privatization or the threat of privatization is that Maybe you would have more access for some veterans, but how many people out there are really well-versed in the intensive, very specialized treatment protocols for post-traumatic stress disorder, for traumatic brain injury? I mean, these are people who have since early 2000s, you know, been really working on these issues, and they're very skilled. In addition to that, um, I think that veterans are a unique population, and they need to work with people who are crazy enough, like me, to want to live in their midst Mm -hmm. and work with them and dedicate it to them. And I don't know how many clinicians out there in private practice, let's say, uh, or at various HMOs, would understand, I think they need veteran-specific treatment and would care enough Mm -hmm. because they're they're, uh, a heavy investment. Could you give some examples or or even if you have a larger sort of uh, idea of like what's the actual effect of those of the bureaucracy and its various rules and so on 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 care? I mean, how does it hurt care? Well, okay. um, Can I go back in time? Sure. Okay. In 2007, two veterans died in the program in treatment. One was one of the first returnees from Iraq. And this was in in the West At the West LAVA. It was a Mm -hmm. famous case. And his name was Justin Bailey. He died of an allegedly accidental overdose. Ten days later, another guy died who was Vietnam era, also of an overdose. Prior to that time period, uh, we had been, the social workers had been saying, you've got to hire more people. We had a caseload of 70 to 1. I couldn't manage that. And we said, this is not safe. Something's going to happen. And they said, you think 70 is bad? You're going to get 100. It was business. And um, 
all it took was two tragic deaths. All of a sudden, our caseload went down to 30. They brought in psychiatrists. Um, they brought in more mental health treatment. They hired many more social workers. And so there were a lot more resources. However, the, when I left the program in 2017, when I left the domiciliary, there were about um, 20 social workers. There are, there are now at most 10 mm. in the domiciliary. Uh -huh. So the hiring, the understaffing is tragic because it leads to caseload problems, which leads you to not be able to keep an eye on patients of very high acuity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that's the example. That was my PTSD, was two guys dying in a space of 10 days when we told them. Right. We told them. And so I think that's one way, um, you know, that you really, really feel it. And then... Um, you also feel um, the political pressures um, when the Obama administration wanted to eradicate homelessness. I think the original goal was 2012, mm -hmm. completely wipe it out. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that barrier kept being extended. Uh, that deadline kept being extended. I think what was the most bizarre was um, to rack up the numbers, um, all of a sudden – we had to keep everybody, don't discharge anybody. And so from an abstinence program, it became a harm reduction program. So you could have a guy who was using and relapse five times and right. D.C. would tell our bosses who would tell us, keep him or her. Usually it was him. Keep him or her. Uh -huh. you know. And so there are risks involved in having people who are actively using in a program. So, so to get someone who's homeless and has these other comorbid, you know, various comorbid health things, problems yeah. and so on, maybe addiction, there there really needs to be a process to bring them in. Oh, to, sure. To, I mean, it, it's it sounds good to just get them off the street. And I've heard some people say, "Well, the house housing is prim is primordial." You know, after housing, then you can do everything else. But if you just do the housing, and you don't have the rest of the infrastructure. It's just kind of – it's kind of a, a – what's the term? It's kind of like a um, Potemkin village. Sort of well, um, I can give you both examples uh -huh. of that. Under under W, the idea was move the bodies fast, cast a wide net, get as many veterans in housing you know, as you can. And so – it was kind of come in and your 90 days are up and you have to go. And the guys say, I've been homeless 30 years. I'm not ready to go after 90 days. Mm -hmm. So there was that whole pressure. Then Obama came in and it completely changed. You know, all of a sudden it's like keep everybody. In each case, you have the politics dictating with no clinical input, mm -hmm. you know, what we could and what we couldn't uh, do. So, um, so um, Bush was uh, treatment first, then you get them housing. And then under Obama, it became literally called housing first. You can't get anybody stable without a roof over their head. Well, a lot of people got the roof over their head and said, ah, I don't need the treatment. Or they lost the apartment in like a month because they couldn't manage. What works, I don't know. <laughs> but both, both were problematic in different ways. And so, the, I mean, these are really complex people with like 
really complicated lives and Very. complicated problems. And often no social support. In the case uh-huh. of the veterans whom I had, um, a very many were cut off from their families, many years of homelessness and drug abuse and mental illness untreated. Their families had given up on them. And uh, so you didn't have any of those resources to draw on. They were alone. And that was hard. More in a moment. Look, whether or not you're a 73-year-old Vietnam veteran or you're a 32-year-old veteran of Afghanistan, you have a lot in common, right? You've both sacrificed a great deal for your country. Both these veterans, probably their families have carried a big burden. And when it comes to health care, you've got two things going against you. You have the tyranny of time and you have the tyranny of distance. One-third of the nearly 9 million veterans who receive health care from the VA live in remote rural areas across the country. I'm David Himmel. Join me and two healthcare experts on November 20th for a special branded episode of Pulse Check from our sponsor, Philips. We'll explore how telehealth is breaking down the barriers to healthcare for America's heroes. So everyone in, 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 in American politics, um, everybody loves the vets and... Each they admi- do? Well, that's when that's what the politicians the politicians. Oh, I understand. In other words, in American politics, yes. everybody wants to show how the vets are like their number one priority. Right. They want to take the best care of that's them right. possible. Anything bad that's happened to the veterans is like a t- number one priority. Yes. So, in theory, anyway, right? I mean, oh, in theory, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, and then each administration comes in and they want to do things differently. One way or another, yes, um, as you described, but um, but they all—it's all aimed at improving the care of veterans. So, what is it that since each administration comes in and they want to make things better, how mm-hmm. come are things getting better? Do you think, or what did you no. see? I think they're not? getting worse. Okay, I think they're getting worse, and here's why. Um, first of all, um, we have continual engagements. I started before, just before the, the Iraq war. There was no plan for the forever wars. So we still have volumes and volumes and volumes of people. There's no room for them and there's no adequate staffing for them. Um, I've heard it said that it's always harder to be a VA employee when there is a Democrat in power because the claim made to me by my boss was that W. Bush looked away. Unfortunately, Obama did not, but, and he had great intentions, but we didn't have the money or the staffing. Uh-huh. So we had to do more with less, which was one reason why I left to write a book. I mean, it was like, you're kidding. It, you know, it, so it hasn't gotten better now. Um, with Trump, there is the push to privatization. Um, and the suspicion among my colleagues, the ex-colleagues there, um, their suspicion is that there's a kind of enforced privatization. They're not hiring mm. so that mm-hmm. people will be forced out of the VA and into other healthcare systems. So what you need is less military engagements, far more staff, far more money, and Congress to deliver the money. So when you were talking about your staff at the domiciliary where you had one, what was it, one social, one to 70 ratio of social workers. Yes. I mean, I assume there's a VA guidebook somewhere that tells you what, 
that ratio is supposed to be, right? I don't know if there was a guidebook. I don't think that there was a ratio then. Or is there a... After the two guys died, it became 30 to 1. And in fact, in Las Vegas, there was a federal legislation uh, was accomplished after Justin Bailey died because he was from Las Vegas. And I believe there it spelled out ratio, and it was something... Uh, like 30 to 1. Mm-hmm. But even after the death, there were times when it crept up to 40 and 42. And, um, you know, whether there's a guidebook or not, I don't Yeah, yeah. No, no I just looks. wondered if you could. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so one of the things the Trump administration has promised um, for the VA is more accountability. And they claim that they've fired 8,600 people, I think, since this Whistleblower and Accountability Act took effect in right. two, two and a half years ago. Do you think that that's a positive idea? I mean, it is being able to fire people more easily? No, that- I don't. I mean, it sounds good, um, sounds great, but in reality, I think it's a terrible idea. When we first heard about it, I was still there, and we said – Oh, so that'll make it easier for them to fire the people they don't particularly like and keep the people who prop up the institution. So there was kind of a chilling effect. People became more afraid to speak up. We have seen many whistleblowers punished, detailed, discharged, however you want to call it. So um, I think it's now being used largely as a political tool. And in fact, just a couple of days ago, didn't they say that uh, the the Whistleblower Organization Committee Act, whatever it is, is actually hurting the whistleblowers. The whistleblowers are paying the penalties. Right, right. So So have you, have you, you've, you have friends and ex-colleagues there. And so you kind of, you still have tabs on what's going on there. Oh yeah. I make sure to keep them because I left the VA, but I really didn't leave the veterans. I, Uh besides the book, I teach gender in the military. I mean, Uh and I, I have a, a large Facebook following and I, I, um, I remain really concerned because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I don't see it getting any better. Have you seen any evidence that, you know, making these other resources available to vets that are in the private sector or in NGOs or whatever they are is, uh, I mean, is it just like little Band-Aids here and there? I or think it's it- little Band-Aids. I mean, um, I would say, you know, willing to try anything, more resources is better than none. But I think what you really need to do is look at boots on the ground at the VA and hire trained clinicians, um, not just clinicians, but people who can really do the hard work that's very veteran-specific. Um, I remember one person from that, the Cone group who had no understanding of housing uh, the housing situation in LA for veterans. You you need a social work background to do that. I have one concern, by the way, though. Um, by the time I left, everyone they were hiring had probably not been conceived during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And you know, these guys would say, you know, they say, "Oh, he can 
talked to this intern, and he said, she's my granddaughter's age, you know, and how do you explain to them the difference in the social acceptance of returnees from Vietnam when you were pelted with tomatoes to um, today? And uh, so um, they're tending to hire, when they do hire young, less expensive, easier to mold, and less familiar with the terrain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, did you have any experience with their re- health records system or anything like that? I mean, this is something I've written about, so I'm just curious. If- well, I certainly have. I kept a yeah, lot of sure, records. Of course, of course yeah. the, the uh, documentation is everything. We used to say, you know, if it's not in the computer, it didn't happen. So mm-hmm. everything always had to be documented. If you're suggesting anything about the wait times, you know, there was the wait time scandal right. and all of that. Well, yeah, um, I wanted to ask you, like, how that affected you out here after that. It it didn't really. It, mm-hmm. it, it, at the time that I was at West LAVA, that wasn't an issue. I mean, um, we would just say, oh, sorry that you're psychotic right now. You'll have to wait six weeks for a, an appointment at the mental health clinic. You know, uh-huh. it didn't really affect us. But I would have to say that um, I had a very odd point of view then, and I I was careful not to express it too much. Um, My view was that, wow, I can understand why those people faked it, faked the wait list. Not to excuse it, but when they're telling you you have to see this many people in this much time or you're going to lose your job— guess what? They're going to get like really desperate. And just as they moved the homeless veterans and count into a building and counted them as housed, I didn't blame them. I could understand the enormous pressure to uh, fake those wait times. Of course, rumors abounded that that went on um, at VA, but we had the opposite problem. We would just say, yeah, you're homeless. We can admit you in a month. What is the guy supposed to do till then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was all because you. So we had so reality. You were, so you dealt with it in a yeah, but you can see why people would have faked it because they're under this intense pressure. To Enormous systems come up with pressure. The yeah, and yeah. and the people doing the actual fake faking are, are the fall people. In reality, their bosses are telling them because they're under the gun from Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. congressman. So, what do you think it would take to fix the VA? <laughs> You know, in five words or less, okay? I'm just, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Money, staffing, uh, less politicization, um, you know, just a a greater, and and somehow, with all that, better systems management. I don't know how you would accomplish that, but I don't know that... um, people go to the VA who are skilled at the distribution of resources. I mean, I would have to say, oh, and another thing is uh, housing. It fits into the whole problem of, of unaffordable housing and versus affordable housing and all of that. But I would say money, staffing, commitment, distribution of resources, and um, – you know, less less politics, less changing every eight years or every four years with another administration. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, there is a trickle-down effect of several years before you get a new administration. We didn't feel Obama's mandates until maybe his third year. Um, so um, it would take time no matter who is elected. Uh, I think that the current way, my colleagues tell me, is just terrible, that the understaffing will continue and that the veterans will be dispirited um, and feel that um, it's no good. Um, if they get a Democrat, I think the staff will go, oh, no, now we're going to get all these mandates, you know. But um, I think it would be, you know, the political climate might change. So if we have another four years of President Trump, I don't think it will get better. And if we have somebody else, there's a chance that um, maybe more money, more resources, and a little less, certainly no Mar-a-Lago trio or anything like that. Yeah. They're, they're a special group. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks for sharing your experiences there. Um, thank you. Well, thank you. It's been uh, it's uh, always a pleasure to talk about veterans. They may seem like loud voices, but they're not heard enough. Thank you to Arthur Allen for guiding that conversation and this series. On Wednesday, we'll have another episode from Art with David Shulkin, the former secretary of the VA. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. My producer this week is Annie Reese. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks, and see you Wednesday.